invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Chapter 5. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God help us to understand his word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we beg you to be present here as you've promised, where more than two or three are gathered in your name. And we ask that you would tend to your word in all its uh, sharp edges and even in the things that are difficult to understand, uh, Lord, we, we want to hear from you, and we want to know you as you've revealed yourself. So would you make yourself known this morning to us, whether that's for the first time in our lives or for the millionth time, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What a strange way to end a letter. And when we think of idols, I think our first instinct is to think of things like the golden calf that the Israelites made when Moses was taking too long on the mountain. When we think about objects of wood and stone and metal, and uh, that, those were real things in the first century world. They're real things in parts of our world. They were real things for the people of Israel throughout their history. And the people that John is writing to In Ephesus, if you go read the book of Acts, there were people that were devoted to material idols like this before the gospel got a hold of them. But this is what's interesting. John hasn't mentioned those kind of idols even once in his entire letter. It's never come up. So what is he talking about? If you remember when we did our series on the Ten Commandments and Iron talked about the Second Commandment, do not make an idol... Of anything, 
We, we, we talked about how this command against idolatry goes way deeper than externals. And in fact, when you read the Old Testament prophets, you find them using phrases like Ezekiel does in Ezekiel 14, idols of the heart. That the human condition is to have a tendency to set up idols in our hearts. And it means fundamentally two things. One is fashioning God the way you would like him to be. Saying, I like to think of God as, instead of receiving what God has revealed about himself. The other, the other aspect of this is making something that is not God the object of your ultimate devotion. And seeking life from it. Now come back to John. For a second, John's driving concern throughout his letter has been to distinguish what is genuine from what is fake in regards to Christianity, from what is real over against what is counterfeit. So this is maybe the most fitting conclusion that John could possibly write. Keep yourselves from idols means don't fall for counterfeit. And that's what we've been talking about uh, the entire time we've been in this series. And let me, let me put uh, a real sharp point, in, point on this. We are engaging in idolatry when we make Jesus into our own likeness and turn him into a mascot for our agendas. And we are engaging in idolatry when we replace Jesus with substitutes. And what's at stake, John says, is life. Eternal life. And that, that means not just endless life, like forever and ever and ever. It means a quality of life, too. And this is, this is the most important thing. John wants you to have it, and he wants you to know that you have it. In fact, he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. As John said right at the beginning of his letter, in knowing this, joy comes to completion. I want to ask you, do you ever think about life as in eternal life, as in what life is really all about? Maybe you're incredibly busy and you're overwhelmed right now, and uh, the day-to-day has just got you wrapped around the axle, and so you're like, I don't have time to think about big questions like that, but every once in a while... You find questions intruding into the rhythms. Like, what is all this for? What is all this about? What can make sense of my suffering? What can answer the longings of my heart? Or maybe right now you have cancer and you're thinking about this a lot. John's fundamental claim is this. Life, eternal life, real life is found only in the Son. And as he closes his letter, he summons some witnesses to the stand. And they testify to the truth, verse 12, that whoever has the Son has life. And John will say their testimony is actually God's testimony. It's God's witness to us. It's his promise and it's his Assurance. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning to try to wrap this letter up. And there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of tricky things in this passage. I'll do my best. Some of it we'll have to talk about uh, offline. Uh, but we need to not miss the forest for the trees. 
or the acorns <laughs> or the little patches of dirt. We, we, we need to see the big picture. And the reason why John ends this book with keep yourself from idols. So first, let's talk about the witnesses and their testimony. And here's the first weird thing that we encounter in this passage. John, if you remember last week, ended with saying, the one who overcomes the world, the one in whom the spell of the world over them has been broken, is the one who believes in Jesus as the Son of God. And then the very next verse, verse 6, our first verse, this is he who came by water and blood. Now, that sounds strange to our ears. It was likely very familiar to his readers. Because the background was that those who had abandoned the apostolic understanding of Jesus for an updated and improved version were, were likely using this language. So it's, it's shorthand. But what is it shorthand for? Well, some have said water and blood refers to the blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side when he was poked with the spear. Uh, that doesn't work. It doesn't explain why the false teachers, as John will go on to say in verse 6, would say he came by water only. Okay, it's just, that's just weird. And it doesn't explain how he came by water and blood. John is talking about an historical past event or events. So it's not the blood and water that flowed from Jesus' side. Others say, oh, this is talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, I think that's an interesting meditative insight and has some, like, links down the road. But again, that doesn't explain how Jesus came by water and blood. We speak of the coming of Christ's presence in baptism and the Lord's Supper, but John is talking about something in the past. And here's the best explanation, I believe. Water refers to the baptism of Jesus, which was the beginning of his public ministry. And what happened at that moment? And this is in all four of the Gospels. There was a divine testimony about who he was. And the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make it very clear. The Holy Spirit descended on him. The Father's voice rang out. And what did he say? He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Well, what does the blood refer to? Some of you are really smart. You're already there. It's the death of Jesus, which is the end of his public ministry, his earthly ministry until his resurrection. And the death of Jesus is not just, oh, well, and then he died. It's his death as a substitutionary sacrifice. Every Sunday, we do commemorate this. When we, we read the words of Jesus, this is the blood, my blood, of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Now look, th these words feel kind of strange to us, but the, but the point is actually kind of simple. John is saying the real Jesus is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh to offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And he does this to reconcile us to God. And to the water and the blood, John adds a third witness, the Spirit, the end of verse 6, by which he means the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness by and through these things, and he also drives them into our hearts. What John says is all three of these agree, verse 7. 
And together they are God's unified witness to the truth about his son. Verses 8 and 9. To deny this is to call God a liar. What John is forcing us to ask ourselves is, do we receive his testimony about his son? What, what is that testimony? Verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony. I love it when he answers directly the question you just asked. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You know, that word have is interesting because we can use it a lot of different ways. We can talk about having a car. We mean we own one. We can talk about having COVID and we mean something very different. So what, what does John mean by have the son? You know what he means? He means something like when you say, I have a husband or I have a wife. I have an intimate personal connection, a bond with that individual. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. This is the testimony. It is a testimony that God has given us. And he's given us through the water and the blood and the spirit. And when he says life, eternal life, it's not just endless life like we said. It is life that you can experience right now. Life in your loneliness. Life in your heartache. Life in your shame. Life in your weakness and failure. No matter how full your life might feel at the moment, John is saying you don't have real life without the son. And in fact, the entire reason he wrote this letter, verse 13, is that you may know that you have life in the son. You know, all the tests that we've been looking at uh, throughout the book are tests that are really meant to confirm this assurance in us. And they sometimes feel scary, but it's important that we don't confuse these means of assurance with the ground of assurance. The grounds of assurance are always Jesus and his person and work. He's our righteousness. He's our acceptance. He's our security. And you know what that means for you? It means life. Real life. If you confuse the grounds and the means of assurance, you turn Christianity into just another performance-oriented religion. And you turn obeying God into something that is done out of insecurity and fear instead of joy and gratitude, which cuts right against the grain of everything John is trying to lay down. These means, these tests that we've looked at throughout, they're like corroborating evidence that you've placed your faith in Jesus. But John is saying, never forget, life is found only in the Son. Now, I want to tease out two implications of this for just a second. And the first is about faith. On the one hand, some people think faith is just a blind leap in the dark. But notice what John is doing. He's saying God has left public witness, public testimony in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we must ask ourselves, what do we make of him? What do we think of him? And where do we go to discover the truth about him? This is why John is writing it down as one of the apostolic witnesses. I write these things to you. This is... In the season in which the New Testament documents are being written, and God is going on record about the significance and the meaning 
of the ministry of Jesus, his person and his mission. And the bookends are the water and the blood. His identity as the divine son of God, his death as a substitutionary sacrifice. Faith is not just some blind leap in the dark. It is looking at the testimony that God has given in the son and to the son. But on the other hand, some people think that faith can just be squeezed out of anyone by applying enough pressure of evidence. And that just creates really wonky, like Christian forms of evangelism, right? And you're just like bringing the hammer, you know, and you think like, if I just do this evidence thing enough, like it's going to break through. But notice John has said in this passage that we need the work of the spirit internally in our hearts to be able to see this. We need the work of the spirit to soften us, to open our eyes. Otherwise, like pounding that evidence is like shining a flashlight in the eyes of a blind man. As we looked at last week, you have to be born of God. You have to have the spirit open you up, right? make you new, draw you to believe. Right? Faith has both objective and subjective dimensions to it. It has both external and internal like anchors to it. And this is at the heart of real Christianity. And you can't separate the two. But here's the second implication. A water-only gospel is not enough. What do we mean by that? What we mean is this. Jesus' atoning death, his blood, is necessary for true spiritual knowledge and assurance of eternal life. You know, I mean, we could spend the rest of the time going through the New Testament and see this just consistent witness to the blood of Jesus. Right? It starts with Jesus himself and the night in which he was betrayed. See, this cup is the, is the new covenant in my blood. You can read on through the letters of Paul where he says we have redemption through his blood. We are justified by his blood. Right? His blood, John writes, purifies us from all sin. We need a water and blood gospel because we need a substitute to take away our sin. And so when we come and we say things like, I really like the ethical teachings of, Jesus, of Christianity, but the doctrines, not so much. We've gutted the whole thing. And you know what we're doing? We're making an idol. We're fashioning Jesus into our own image. Now, I may, I may get in trouble uh, for this. I've used it before, though, and I didn't, so um, this would be new. But um, if you remember the critically acclaimed fil- film that came out uh, years ago, um, I have seen it. I'm not recommending it. Um, but the name of it was Talladega Nights, and, um, starring Will Ferrell. And uh, you have Ricky Bobby, the great race car driver, and, uh, and his sidekick, Cal. And uh, they're teammates and, and best friends. And in one of the scenes, Ricky... Cal, his teammate, and Ricky's family are sitting at the dinner table. And they're staring at a spread of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. But before they dig in, Ricky prays, dear Lord, baby Jesus. And Ricky's wife interrupts Ricky and reminds him that Jesus actually grew up. To which Ricky responds, well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best. And before long, everyone at the table starts weighing in. Chip, the grandfather, says, he was a man. He had a beard. Cal, his sidekick, says, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. 
And then Walker, one of Ricky's sons, says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. And then Cal chimes in again. I like to think of Jesus with giant eagle wings and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And on and on and on it goes. And I, I get it. Like it's over the top. And to some of you, it may sound grossly irreverent. But I think that scene is a caricatured portrait of what all of us do in our hearts is that we have our politicized Jesus. We have our self-affirmation Jesus. We have our Jesus that is just our life coach or just a bad therapist. And bad is the emphasis. We manufacture views of Jesus. And John is saying, I want you to have life, real life. And that life is in his son. And God has gone on record as to who he is and what he has done to save. It's a water and a blood gospel. It is the divine son of God offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. Don't fall for the counterfeit, John is writing. Receive the testimony of God through his witnesses. Now what happens when you receive this testimony? What, what, what goes on in your life? Well, we've talked about a lot of that <clears throat> throughout this book. But John, at the end, just kind of ends, ends with like a flurry of benefits that come along with salvation by grace through faith. And if you don't read them all together at once, you can get really lost in the weeds. But his fundamental desire is to help you and me see that you begin to enjoy the relationship with the one who has given you new birth and brought you into his family. And one of the chief places where we experience that enjoyment is prayer. Knowing that he hears us and enjoys our fellowship. He loves hearing us talk about the needs of his church and of the world. And we have the confidence that he cares. And that's really what all these verses about prayer in verses 14 and following are about. Because you know, what is it that we most often think in our seasons of frustration with prayer? We think... Does he really care? Does he even hear? And John is writing, you bet he does. When you found life in the sun, it begins to banish that fear forever. That he's not listening. And John even goes so far as to say something a little crazy. He says, and we know we have the requests that we ask of him. Now look, there's some conditions that... That, that John ties to this assurance. He says, we got to come believing he hears us. If you struggle with this, you got to spend time reminding yourself of God's promises and his desire to do us good and who he is. And the Bible even invites us to cast our anxieties on him. And he says here that we're to pray according to his will. Right? Which doesn't mean we go, what do I think God's will is out there? I'm going to pray for that. It means we become a people who are shaped by God's concerns, that his concerns become our concerns because we're intimately connected to him. You know, so often uh, our, our prayers, right, they're just, they're just for our own comfort. And you know what I think? I, I think God actually, like he throws us a bone there. <laughs> it's like when my little children come up and it's like, I got a boo-boo and there's no mark on their arm and I'm just like, kiss it. And, you know, but if they're going to grow up, they, they, they learn to ask for bigger and bolder things. When we grow up in Christian, we learn that it's not just about like, God, make my life go well for me today. 
It's about God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And John is saying, you can have boldness with your heavenly father when you have life in the son. We pray with confidence for struggling Christians. That they would turn away from sin that robs them of assurance and joy. I mean, you read Paul's letters. This is how he prays in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, Philippians 1, Colossians 1. We can pray for non-Christians if you're a Christian. Wanting them to experience the love of Jesus, to know the fellowship with the Father. And then John adds this weird phrase, but what about the sin that leads to death? And you know, our proclivity is to fixate on what is obscure or hard to understand. And we spend less time thinking about what is clear and central. Remember that, right? But I got to say something or you're going to fry me. The sin that leads to death based on everything that John says throughout his letter probably refers to those who have been exposed to the truth, but deliberately distort it, misuse it, take advantage of it for their own ends because of their callous hearts. And you might think of spiritual abusers, manipulators, hucksters, those sorts of things. Some think this is synonymous with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Honestly, I'm not sure, but one thing I'm certain of. If you're afraid you've committed it, you certainly have not. Because someone whose heart is hardened in this way has no tenderness or fear of being guilty of it. And I want you to notice something. John doesn't say, don't pray for that. What he says is, I'm not saying you should spend all your time praying for this. There are countless things to spend your time praying for. And John is interested in our joy and our intimacy with the Father in prayer. Confidence in prayer comes because we are assured of his love. That love is manifest in the Son. And we know he delights to hear us and answer us. Not that everything goes our way now, but when the kingdom fully comes, we will see how we have been given Everything according to his will and in his name. John goes on in verse 18 to talk about, and anyone born of God does not sin. We've talked about this before already and the way John, John talks. And, and what he adds here is so fascinating because he says, we know that everyone who is born, born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Who is he who was born of God in that second part? You know who it is? It's Jesus, the eternal son of God, the eternally begotten one. And do you realize that what John is trying to do is comfort? He's like, you're not going to make a practice of sinning. Do you know why? Because you can't make peace with it. You're born of God. And by the way, Christ, the eternal son of God, is going to guard you. He's going to come after you. He's going to protect you from the evil one. Jesus himself taught us to pray this, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. And John is like grinding in our hearts of when you have life in the sun, you have hope against sin and evil in the world and in your life. The one born of God will protect you, will guard you, will keep you. And then John says right at the end in verse 20 that the ultimate benefit is that that we know the true God. When you found life in the sun, you know the one for whom you were made. And you enjoy the relationship that you have with him. So John comes to his last command. This is the final command in the letter, which we've been leading up to. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Don't fall for counterfeit. How would you discover the idols in your life? 
You know, one way is to ask, what is it that I really look to for life? And if I don't have, I wonder if life is really worth living. An idol is anything that occupies God's place in your heart, that drives your life, trusts it to make you happy, guides your behavior, and that includes false views of Jesus, distorted views of Jesus, turning Jesus into your mascot. And we have to ask, is there anything beside God which is driving my life, causing me to do things which are contrary to his commands, or becoming the false motivation to keep his commands? Is there anything beside God which I, in, it revealed in Jesus Christ, I think I must have in order to have life? John is saying, guard your heart from this. Keep yourself from this. But remember that he who was born of God keeps you. Now, some of you may be saying right now, like, look, this is all interesting. I'm not really religious. This doesn't really map onto my life. But, I, but would you be willing to consider that all kinds of scholars who are not Christians, some of whom are atheists, Say, when you look at our world, it's hard to ignore that the religious impulse is written all over the human condition. You know, here in the Silicon Valley, we have things that are our hopes and dreams. And we think that in pursuing those, we're going to find life. And you know what we do? We go to services to help root us in the pursuit of those dreams. They're called conferences. And we gather with other people who are in pursuit of the same thing. And then guess what we spend our time doing most of the day? Making sacrifices in pursuit of those hopes and dreams. And guess what happens when we fail in the pursuit of those hopes and dreams? We feel shame. We feel worthless. We feel disconnected from the source of that which is life. Have we not just described the activity of a religious community. It's all over our lives. It's everywhere. And what John is saying is, look, pursuing all these things, they're not bad in and of themselves, but when they became, become the source of life for you, they are dangerous and destructive. They make horrible gods. They cannot bear the weight of our hopes. Keep yourself from idols. Idols compete with the true God for the allegiance of our heart, hearts. What is it for you? Whatever it is, John says, it's counterfeit. And you know what? One of the things that's fascinating about idols is this. They always say, perform for me and I will bless you. And they say, perform for me or else. But only the gospel comes and says, I have performed for you. When God exposes idolatry in our hearts, he doesn't say, do better and you will have my love. You know what he says? He says, I have loved you and I love you. Why are you running away? Life is found in the sun. Now, near the end of John's gospel, this same John who wrote this letter writes these words. This is chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 of John's gospel. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. He's just, he's just covered the whole water and blood ministry of Jesus. And he says, man, I... There's so much here that I haven't even written down. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
That's John's heart. A desire that people may have life in Jesus Christ. And his heart is singing the same tune in his letter, but he's speaking to Christians in danger of falling for counterfeit. And he's saying, guard your heart from that. Guard your heart from this. You know, God wants you and I, if we have found life in the Son, to have this kind of heart too. For others to know. Because this is God's heart. And he actually wants all of his people to be additional witnesses in the world. How? By living out life in the Son. What does that look like? Well, remember last week when you're born of God, Jesus is your ultimate hope. Love and obedience begin to become your delight. The spell of the world is broken over you. And you begin to live a different life that bears witness to the reality of life in the Son. You know, we live in a world of contested claims. And uh, man, the last few years, it's like everybody's like, I don't know who to trust. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what sources to go to. And John is laying it down in writing. That God's testimony, that what he has gone on record about is that there is life in the Son. You know, I, I was uh, talking to somebody, I guess it was about a year ago now, who was telling me about his story of coming to faith in Christ. And, and it's, a, it's a marvelous story. But there was a line that he dropped that just has stuck with me forever. And he said, when he was describing coming to faith in Jesus, he goes, you know that, you know that moment when God becomes a premise and not just a conclusion? A premise and not just a conclusion. What, what did he mean by that? What he's describing is what it means to be born of God. Is it suddenly this becomes the thing, life in the sun becomes the thing by which you look at everything else in life. It's a premise. It's not a conclusion, a tenuous conclusion based on all these premises that you're sure of. It becomes the thing that shapes everything else. What this guy was describing is finding life in the sun, the real Jesus, the real gospel, real life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but, but because by it, I see everything else. This is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And guess what? This goes all the way back to Jesus himself. When he prayed that great prayer in John 17, and he says, this is eternal life. They, they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your relentless pursuit of us. Thank you that in love, Father, you sent the Son to live and die and be raised for us. And that you, Lord Jesus, having risen, poured out your spirit upon your church. And that you are bearing witness by and with these means, this water and blood gospel that we so desperately need. Would you do your work in our hearts? Would you push into the crevices and corners where the idols are hiding and push them out? Would you keep us and guard us and protect us as you promised? And would you make us new so that we might enjoy 
life with you, the life that we have in the Son. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now come to our time of offering, which is one of the ways that we respond to God in worship. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we don't want your money. We really mean that, but we do invite you to take this time to reflect on what's been said and done in the service so far. But if Grace Church is your home, uh, this is an opportunity to give uh, joyfully and sacrificially and hopefully uh, for the spread of the good news that life is in the sun. moment we get to come and share together at this table. And uh, if you're new to our community and don't know how this works, if you're seated downstairs, uh, we come forward to receive the elements. So you come down the middle aisle, receive the bread and the wine, you return on the outer aisle. If you're seated up in the balcony, we have ushers stationed there to help you out. Uh, We do use wine in our service of communion. If you prefer grape juice, you can find that on the outer rim of the tray, and it's the clear liquid. And we ask that everybody hold on to the elements until all have been served so that we can all partake together. Jesus is the one who established this meal because he knew that our hearts are idol-making factories and that we're susceptible to counterfeit. And so again and again, he invites us to come back to a water and blood gospel. That Jesus, the divine, eternal son of God, entered into history and he died a sacrificial death that you and I could be cleansed and made new. It's what this table is about. It's not a reward for spiritual good behavior. It's not uh, for the overachievers or those who've reached some high level of spiritual, you know, self-congratulating achievement. It is for people who are hungry and thirsty. It is for people who feel weak and brittle and frail. It is for people who know their need for the cleansing blood of Jesus and said, life is in the sun. If you're here this morning and you don't believe that's true, uh, we're so glad you're here. And we actually pray for you to be here and prepare for you to be here. And we want to walk with you as you explore the claims of Jesus. But we encourage you, don't take the bread, don't take the wine, don't, don't do what's not true of where you are in your spiritual journey. You don't have to pretend or fake it here. But would you ask yourself, where am I seeking life? And would you consider that God has gone on record and said, he who has the son, she who has the son, has life. 
On the night on which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. And as long as we do eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, Christians throughout the history of the church have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God. Therefore, the people of God. So take them, feed on them in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, there is life in you. And there is life in you because you gave yourself over to death. That we might know it, that we might enjoy it, that we might have it and celebrate it forever. So would you nourish our weak faith? Would you rekindle our dwindling hope? Would you renew us in the joy of knowing that we have eternal life in you? And would you do that now as you've promised? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.